Today's sermon is called True Victory. True Victory. And when I say the word victory, I think certain images come to mind. I think you might think of certain training montages of an athlete, right, where they're going through all these training struggles, trying to get to true victory. And quite often, I think if we're going to be honest, our lives don't really feel victorious. And I want to address that. That oftentimes we feel quite defeated in our walk with God, in life, altogether as a result. And so my goal for us today is, is specifically that we would know what true victory actually is. What true victory actually is. Paul the Apostle in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, at the end of that chapter, he says that every athlete, they, they train. And so I actually do not run aimlessly. I don't, I don't fight as one beating the air. But I discipline my body to keep it under control so that I will not be disqualified after I have preached to others. So there's a sense in which your dependence has to be coupled with discipline in your walk with God. And that's what I want us to do, but it has to come from this place of depending on God who is victorious. And again, the world's definition of victory and, and the victorious life is completely different from the biblical one. Matter of fact, it says in 1 John, we have it up here, I believe. In 1 John 5, he says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's our faith. Look at the next verse here. He kind of expounds on that. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's it. So this world will tell you, well, here's what the victorious life looks like. Right? You, fill in, you fill in the gaps, right? Whatever it may be, whether it's wealth, power, fame, success, achievements, beauty, you name it. Right? And, 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 but what, what we see here is that God is saying through his word that the victorious life actually comes from faith and the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, specifically Christians. This is where true victory lies. It's actually not for anyone else. They will not be able to overcome the true dangers that lie up ahead. Only the Christian. And what is victory? Our faith, as it says in verse 4. And so I got a few points here talking about what it means to have victorious faith. What does that even look like? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look to a very famous passage as we're continuing through the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, the famous story of David and Goliath. Many of you guys are probably familiar with it, whether you grew up in church or even if you didn't grow up in church. It's one of the most famous battles that happened in the Old Testament. David and Goliath, so you guys know the story. It's the Philistine army and the, the Israelite army gathered. And there's a valley between them, right? So we're going to look at here verse 3 of chapter 17 of Samuel. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and, the Israel, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And this is how they waged war back in the day. This is the ideal. Is, there, was, there, was, there was a valley between you guys, and you, you kind of taunted the enemy to try to come to you so that they would have to ascend, and you have the advantage. So they'd stand there taunting each other to see who's going to come first. Because it's much easier to take down an enemy if they're coming at you, right? Versus you ascending up to them. So it's these two armies that are taunting each other, essentially saying, come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. And so they're trying to get them to, that's, that's, that's a thing today, right? Come at me, bro. So that's like, hit me so I can finally hit you back, right? And this is what's happening between these two armies going, come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. And so they're shouting at each other. That's what's happening in the verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And this is about close to nine feet. 
Now, if you're wondering if has this really happened, uh, today the, the tallest man is eight foot three inches. That's probably the height of your ceiling at your house. Yeah. He, yes, it's real. He's Kurdish. And then in 1918 in Illinois was born a man who was eight feet 11 inches tall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was born eight pounds as a baby, a normal sized baby, but by 13 he was already over seven feet. Yeah, yeah. If the NBA existed back then, they would have been scouting for that guy. <laughs> Let's keep going here, verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, which I, I, it sounds funny, like all these envelopes, but that's, how, that's not what that is. That's not good armor. <laughs> it's, it's, it's metal things that protect him. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Verse 6. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul, that, that's our king of Israel? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then, I, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then he then you shall be our servants and serve us. This was actually a, a common practice in ancient times where one country and another country, when they went to war, they would sometimes say, you know what, let's not waste all of our army and, and our civilians. Why don't we just choose one guy? And this will show which God is stronger, your God or our God, and, and then we'll go from there. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pause there. What's really interesting is that Moses, as he records this account, is that he spends so much time and so much detail to Goliath's armor, does he not? So much detail to that. And I really believe that he's doing that in order for us to see, to get a glimpse into the fear of the people of Israel, of why they were so afraid when they see with just their mortal eyes. And they don't see with faith. This is, he's trying to communicate that. But here's what he's also trying to communicate. I really believe. He's saying God likes to work when the odds are stacked against him. God likes to work when the odds are stacked against him. Because that's when he can really show his power. He can really show what he's capable of. When he rolls up his sleeves and, and, and puts his outstretched arm into the situation and does what only he can do. What if when we encounter trials... Instead of going, I can't believe how horrible this is, what if we said, I can't wait to see how God's going to come through? What if we said in our trials, instead of saying, I can't believe how horrible this is, but we said, I can't wait to see how God's going to come through. And with great expectancy and great hope and even joy, we wait on God and wait with And so we see all the details of this armor, and this is absolutely insane, you know. And so my first point is this. Victorious faith roots out our fears. Victorious faith roots out our fears. Because what we see here in verse 11, right? What is verse 11? What what does it say? When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And I think many of us would be too, if we're going to be honest, right? Nine foot tall, a giant with armor from head to toe. You know, all your punches and attacks might tickle him. And so they're greatly afraid. And now here's the thing. Saul, it's interesting that he mentions that Saul was greatly afraid. He was actually the king. And not only that, right, in the few chapters before, it says that he was the tallest man in all of Israel. It says he was a head taller than all of the men there. 
If anything, he should have been the guy to muster up the courage and then to go forth into battle. But he doesn't. It says he's dismayed and greatly afraid. What does this mean? That we cannot look to the things of this world to build up the courage to go against the giants. We can't. We can't look to the things of this world to build up the courage to go up against the giants that we face now or tomorrow. We can't look to them. How many of us are looking to the world and to the wisdom of this world and going, you know what? Okay, what do they have to offer? <laughs> What's their wisdom? What are the things that they're offering so that I can face my fears, my anxieties, my, my, my sadness, my anger, whatever's wrong with my life? How can I look to them to try to face the giants in my life? And we see here that it doesn't work. Saul had the height. He had the experience in warfare. Greatly afraid and dismayed. Doesn't work. And now here's the thing. Fear doesn't always look like worried panic, right? When you think of someone who's fearful, you might think of someone pacing back and forth, talking really fast, doesn't know what to do. But fear can oftentimes, if we're going to be honest, looks like a calm, committed way of going about life. Example, someone who fears being poor, maybe because of an experience in the past growing up, will become very stingy with their money. They might work really hard specifically just for more money rather than using it for the glory of God and sharing with those who are in need. Someone who was hurt in the past very badly growing up might out of fear live in such a way where they're always pushing people and God away, isolating themselves. Someone who struggled with shame a lot for whatever reason in the past or whatever they're struggling with now may live a life where they're always gathering people around them who will affirm their shame. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. They won't do you good just by affirming your shame. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Essentially, it might be because of fear. What we see here about fear also is that it's really a two-part struggle, is it not? Fear, number one, (laughs) the fear itself is a sin. Because God says time and time again, over 300 times in the Bible, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And it's correlate verbs. Do not fear. God says, I need you to fear me. I need you to stay close to me. And fear what it's like to go apart from me. Fear itself is a sin. And then secondly, the way we deal with our fear apart from God is the second part. Again, we we look to the ways of this world and the ways that we've been used to to try to protect ourselves, to deal with it, and try to run away from the thing that's causing us pain and anxiety. And we try to run the way that we deal with our fear. So the fear itself and then the way we deal with the fear apart from God. Those are the two things we need to repent of. How many of us, when we're feeling afraid, when we're feeling anxious, take time to repent of both of those things and tell God, God, I'm sorry for fearing this. And I'm sorry for the way that I'm dealing with it apart from you. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, offer, offer your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
You know that is the, according to Amazon, that is the most highlighted passage in any book. Talk about a pandemic of fear, spiritually speaking. And God's saying, victorious faith roots out our fears. Let's, let's jump over to verse 32. And David said to Saul, to the, to the king, right, shepherd boy who just comes in from the field, he, he hears about what's going on, this war, and he says this, and let no man's heart fail because of him, that is Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has a man of war. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And, there, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. <laughs> your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. My second point is this. Victorious faith remembers God's work. Victorious faith remembers God's work. Look at verse 33. Saul said to David, you're not able. You're not able to do this, David. Shepherd boy. This guy is nine feet tall, all right? He, he's been training in warfare since his youth. You, on the other hand, have just been surviving in the wild, singing these psalms to God that you've been writing. You're not able. Saul sees the challenge. David sees the triumph. Saul, from an earthly perspective, just sees the challenge. But David, from a heavenly perspective sees the triumph. Why? Why does he do that? Because he builds on what God did in the past to help him persevere in the present. You see? We need to build on the past of what God has done in order to persevere in the present. And building memorials in our minds, remembering how good God has been. How good God has been. This is what we build on. Now, here's the thing. The fact is, if we're going to be honest, we tend to forget what we should remember, and we remember what we should forget. We tend to forget what we should remember, and we tend to remember that which we should forget. And that keeps us stuck, and that keeps us living in fear and dismayed and greatly afraid before the giants that face us. But the fact is, God defeated those lions in the past so that you could face your giants today. Did you forget that? But what else are you focusing on instead? God defeated those lions so that you could defeat those giants. Not by your own strength, but by his strength, the Lion of Judah, the Most High God. It's not our own strength, not our own wisdom, but God alone. Have you ever seen an acorn tree or acorn seed? <laughs> if you don't know what, what that acorn, what it turns into is that it turns into an oak tree. All of the DNA God has placed into that acorn to become a mighty oak tree that towers above all the other trees. If you choose to remember God's work in the past, that is like an acorn. It has all the DNA in there, and you have to cultivate that, nourish that, so that when it's time, it's a mighty oak tree that can withstand the storm. 
God defeated the lion so that you can defeat the giants. With his help, the lion of Judah, the most high God. That's the only way. Let's keep going. Verses 42 to 51, 52. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He was a hater. <laughs> he was a hater. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and, and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. Then David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. Same there. Last point. What we see here is that victorious faith reveals our heart. Victorious faith reveals our hearts. Number one, it reveals what our heart sees. David, what we see here, right here in, in, in verse 47, he says, is that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. It's not my battle. It's not your battle. It's God's battle. Because <laughs> if, if you remember in verse 10, Goliath, he said that I defy the armies of Israel. I defy you guys, the armies of Israel. And which, which David says in verse 45, is the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. You're not just messing with God's people. You're messing with God himself. This is his battle. This is his battle. Let me drive this home for us. God is closer to your situation than you think. The battle you're facing, child of God, if you are his, this battle is actually his. Not yours. Speaking of another Saul in the New Testament, whose Greek name was Paul, Paul the Apostle, when he was on his way to go persecute Christians, the Lord strikes him with blindness and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting these Christians. He's like, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. Who are you persecuting? You're not persecuting them. You're persecuting me. Anyone who is against you, child of God. They're messing with God. Any trial that's trying to trip you up, that trial is up against God. You know, in my, in my driveway, I have a, a basketball hoop set up that Rebecca bought me for Father's Day slash birthday last year. 
But the other day during this week, there was a crazy storm in the middle of the night for like 30 minutes. And then in the morning, the hoop was on the ground. <laughs> the, the, the hoop was like dented and all of that. <laughs> you know, a 10-foot hoop, Goliath size, bigger than Goliath. But that's all it took. God's like, I'm going to send a quick storm and boom. <laughs> Nothing can stand in God's way. The battle is God's, not ours. God is not removed from your situation. He's closer than you think. And then secondly, it reveals what our heart's motives are. Victorious faith, what our heart's motives are. What, what are we about? Look at verse 46. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give, your, give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that I may take a picture and post it on social media and they can see how awesome I am. Oh, wait, that's not, that's not this version? That what? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That everyone may know that there's a God in Israel. That this God, that they can turn to him. If they would turn from their sin and believe in him and follow him all the days of life, this God can be on your side. Romans chapter 8.28 can apply to you. This does not apply to the rest of the world. For God works all things for good. Those who love him are called according to his purpose. It's reserved specifically for them. All things. And then he goes on in verse 37 and he says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, all the persecution and trials we face right before that, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. He says that we might even die by the sword. But in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Matter of fact, not only has he conquered Satan's sin and death, he takes what the enemy uses and actually uses it for our sanctification and glorification. We're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. David wants everyone, everyone on this earth, all the earth to know that this God is in Israel and to turn to the God of Israel and to be saved, not by sword or spear, but by the Lord's power. The fact is, is, is that our, our motives, if we're going to be honest, we tend to want to live for ourselves, right? As I alluded to earlier in that joke, is that we want to, we think this whole thing is about us. As if all of this revolves around us, as if we're the main character in the story. But the fact is, the entire Bible shows that, the, that God is the main character. And even the story of the David and Goliath, David is saying, no, it's actually not about me, it's about God. But us, we think that it's about ourselves, and we keep messing up the script every time we think it's about us, and we live for ourselves. And God's saying, no, it's about me. He's trying to reel us back. He's like, it's about me. And this is how I designed it. That everything was created through him and to him and for him. And he reels us back in into orbit around the Son of God. And everything makes sense. And our heart is at rest and full of joy. In light of who he is and all that he has promised. And from this, we go forth with victorious faith. What is our lives about? Is God the main character of your story? Let him be the main character. Let the story revolve around him. This is the greatest thing we could point people to. In everything that we do and say, everything, let it point to Jesus, to the glory of God, so that we can, in love, point people to the truth that actually saves, not by sword or spear or the things of this world or the standards of this world, but the Lord and his love, revealed ultimately in Christ, the cornerstone, what the apostles also call 
the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. People are going to stumble over this. It's not going to make sense. We fight battles by sword and spear. We fight battles by the things of this world, by riches, wealth, power, fame, success. This is how we have the victorious life. It ain't going to make sense to the world. To humble ourselves to God, the rock of the ages, the one who gave himself up for us. It's not going to make sense to humble ourselves and to say, he's the main story, not me, no one and nothing else in this world, but Jesus. What did he do? What did he do for us? Is that he, the, the cornerstone, the rock of offense, that he defeated Satan, sin, and death. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 talks about how we have three enemies. Satan, the world, and the flesh. Satan, the world, and the flesh. Those are the three enemies we're going up against. And Jesus, through the cross, defeated all three of those things in our place. His name was ashamed at the cross. He was dishonored so that we can be exalted and put with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He did that for us. And if we know that he defeated Satan, sin and death, he defeated the world, the flesh, and the devil for us, if he did that, how then will he not help you through the trial you're in right now? If he defeated the lions and the bears in the past, how will he not defeat the giants now? You see? We tend to forget what we should remember and remember what we should forget. Romans chapter 8, what else does he say? If he who gave up for himself his own son, how will he not also give us everything else that we need? That's what we have to do. This is how we fight this with this victorious faith, is that we remember what he did for us through Jesus, the cornerstone. And we go, how could I fear now if he did that for me? He did that for me? Oh, merciful, gracious God, forgive me for fear. Forgive me also for the ways I've been dealing with my fear apart from you. Lord God, I trust in you. And I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. No matter what giants lay up ahead, you've proven yourself faithful. You defeated Satan, sin, and death for me. I will not fear. Amen.